business class listeners. Come on now. That's right, Get Drunk As Hell. What a great song. This is kind of like a, a Johnny Cash feel to it. It has that country blues rock feel to it. This is Ben Bostick. He's out of Georgia. That song is called Hellfire. Ben Bostick, Artist of the Week. I got to tell you, I dig this music. I'm sure... I know I'm a fan of Johnny Cash. I'm sure a lot of you are a fan of Johnny Cash. This is a up-and-coming artist over here, again, out of Georgia. Right now, it seems like he's in California trying to make his career in music, although during this pandemic, hard to do that with a lot of these venues that are closed at the moment. However, if you want to check out this artist and support this artist, visit the episode page. I will link his Spotify page. He has about 16,000 followers. And again, it does have that country blues rock kind of feel. There's actually a couple of the songs that I've listened to that are actually pretty darn good. So that is my artist of the week, Ben Bostick. Business class listeners, welcome to another episode of Wisco Weekly, where I get to dive into and analyze the automotive business space and and dissect it to learn all of life's little lessons to to showcase how some of the automotive business world mirrors that of social policy and economic policy and and political ideologies. Now, speaking of artists, if you have any recommendations on any up-and-coming artists or bands, Please recommend my way. I greatly would appreciate it. I mean, hell, even if it's not a new and up and coming artist or band, if maybe it's an old one, you know, as a matter of fact, the last song that is played on 99% of all previous episodes, and then it including, it'll be at the end of this episode, is an old band. Unfortunately, they're no longer around, but they had a one album. I think there was only maybe about six or seven songs on there. But I was able to outreach to them through another friend of mine, and I use their music now at the very end of the show. And that the artist's name is Wake Up Lucid, and the song that I conclude with is called A Minor. So all throughout 2021, I want to continue to highlight and showcase new artists new music. And so if you have any recommendations, please share with me. You can do so uh, through Apple Podcasts. Just write a review and mention them, or you can send a, you know, post a comment on LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever it may be. Send it to me and I'd be glad to to share it to, to my audience here. Okay, moving along. Upcoming on the show, you won't want to miss this, I have a special guest coming on the show that I've been following for maybe the last year and a half, two years now, and she is someone who runs a dealership, and I think that one of the things that I've been most intrigued about is has been the, the investments, again, in keeping with the theme this year of making the investments, 
of the investments that she and her entire auto group has been making throughout the years and how that's been how that's paid off. I think one of the things that is certainly very relevant and very unique about the dealership world is their pride in the community. And so I'm hoping to highlight more of that with my special guest, and that will be coming up in a couple of weeks. So be sure you are subscribed to the show so you get the notification when that comes out. On this episode, I get to chat with Mr. Randy Kobat from Cox Automotive and V Auto. We had the chance to look back on last week's NADA conference and some of the things that happened, some of the things that didn't happen, and kind of take a little bit of a critical eye and a critical lens to what the outlook of car sales will be in this coming year. One of the things that Randy was able to bring to the show is that in addition to his work at V Auto, he also has a background in business strategy. He's been an adjunct professor at a few different colleges, so it was great to basically have him drop his Viado hat and put his educator hat on. And then we were able to talk about NADA from a little bit more of a neutral lens and just, and kind of assess the direction of NADA based upon what happened at the virtual conference. So that is coming up right now. Thanks again for your support of Wisco Weekly. A lot of great things coming up this year in 2021. I hope you have a fabulous day and I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, let's get into the show. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Hi, bienvenidos, vitae, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the show. And my, oh my, I feel so good recording right now on a Friday. It's been such an inspiring week. A lot of that attributed to the NADA conference that just concluded virtually. And I must say, since the pandemic started... With all conferences being taken online, NEDA was really the first conference that I've attended, and I've attended a handful during the pandemic, but it was the first one that actually evolved the conference to be more than a video chat, a video group chat. The production quality was superb, and I do hope that other conferences take some cues from NADA to know how to put on a good virtual conference these days. So kudos to the NADA team and the work that they they performed. Also, another reason why I'm so excited about today and this recording is I get to have a longtime industry expert on the show, and we're probably going to go back and forth on what's going on in the automotive business. I love bringing on individuals who have both a mixture of business and have also been kind of schooled, you know, educated in this field, and that's exactly where who my guest is today. So let's get into the guest. My guest is a 21-year veteran of the automotive industry, and he brings with him a longtime background in the area of business, and he also trained in the methods of science. 
My guest was a Husky at Northern Illinois University, where he obtained a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry. He then attended Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago, where he obtained an MBA in Finance and Business Strategy. He's been featured in CBT News, Auto Remarketing, and many other media outlets, and he even plays host on the V Auto podcast. Listeners, you should definitely go check out that podcast. I'll link that in the episode page. Men, women, and children, please welcome to the show the 1985-1987 captain of the Husky Marching Band <laughs> Drumline, Mr. Randy Kobach. How are you, sir? I am very well, Dennis. Thank you for that great introduction. Can I can I call you Captain? I suppose if you'd like, sure. Captain, my captain, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's exactly what I was going to say. Captain, my captain. <laughs> So I actually I find it interesting that you were captain of the drum line. Do you do you still practice play anything it, of that nature? I do. Um, so my so my dad was a professional musician. So he taught us all piano growing up. My brother, sister, and I. And um, you know I I stayed with it probably the longest educationally because I originally was a music major when I went to NIU and. Uh, and so, yeah, I still play. I still love it. Um, I play once a month at church and in the in the contemporary uh, band there for contemporary service. And, you know, I still have a bunch of friends and we like to get together um, and play music. So, yeah, it's been part of my life since I was about, well, all growing up. But I started playing the drums at 10. Well, so, you know, thinking about you as the captain of the drum line, Thinking of a prior guest, your uh, colleague, Jonathan Smoke. DJ Smokey Smoke. DJ Smokey <laughs> Smoke, that's right. <laughs> so um, in my head, there's this actually one YouTube video that uh, it's, it's a live performance. And it was done at Coachella, and it was with DJ AM and Travis Barker and DJ Amza, you know, he's your regular DJ. Then Travis Barker is your, is your drummer. Mm-hmm. I, I would love to see you and Jonathan smoke perform. Have you guys ever thought about performing or have you done any? Yeah, no, we haven't, we haven't talked about that, but we should look at it. I, I think one of the fascinating things for me is um, I've never worked with in an organization that has as many drummers as Viato does. Really? So there's a lot of us within the Viato business that are drummers. And so it's kind of please, fun. Please put me on the VIP list, whatever <laughs> it needs to be in order to attend that performance. I would lo- I would love to witness that. Yeah, I'll reach out to him after this. So NADA, Randy, happened this past week. It was the first virtual conference, um, the first big conference uh, of the automotive space. Again, I thought the production quality was absolutely superb. Uh, Rhett's. Uh, hosting and leading the show, did a wonderful job. I loved the interview that he did with uh, Bob Woodward, and hopefully we can kind of get to some of the things that they talked about there. Mm-hmm. There was the transition to the new NADA chair, Paul Walzer. Again, I want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, objectives that he, he, that he is setting out uh, for you know his one-year tenure as, as chairman. Um, obviously, you not only attended, but you spoke at it. Give me the, you know, give me the 30,000 foot overview of how you thought it went. I mean, I think overall, to your point, I thought it was a a really good effort by NADA to 
um, try to bring us together as an industry, which they have always done a tremendous job since I've been in the industry uh, doing. And, um, you know, they, they've, they really leaned into the current experience and current environment that we're living in and did the best that they could um, to, to try to, again, bring us together as an industry. Um, you know, I thought the, um, the topics that were presented uh, across all the workshops were relevant and important. And um, to, to your point, the production quality was really strong. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the great things that I took advantage of was the networking opportunities that they created kind of at the end of the day. So we could get together, which in, in a way that's, you know, really kind of familiar with us now, you know, a year into the pandemic, uh, whether it's been, you know, Christmas or Thanksgiving, we've gotten together on Zoom with family and we had an opportunity to do that with, with our dealer friends. So I, um, I, didn't get so the I chance, liked it. I didn't get the chance to do any networking at the end. Uh, what, what was that like? It, you know, it was an opportunity to, you know, sit and have a beer and, and chat with with some of our best customers. So um, and and so I, I thought it was effective and it was a nice touch. OK, um, because, again, a lot other things we'll get to on the show. But, you know, you were or you are a professor still. Do you, are you still teaching to this day? <laughs> I'm a guest uh, lecturer, if you will. Um, so um, I have taught in the past. One time I was um, uh, teaching a leadership class at a school here in Chicago called Kendall College, which is a culinary school. So I had the opportunity to teach leadership to the future chefs of the world. That's cool. Um, which was really kind of fun. Um, but yeah, so I've had the opportunity to be a guest lecturer at some business schools. Okay, so let's put on the lecturer lens for <laughs> Randy Kobat right now. And so so there was the good of NADA, there was the networking aspect, there was the production, the content. What were what were some things that maybe you didn't see either to be as good or maybe it was left out that you thought was left out of NADA this past year? You know, I I, I like to say we work in the biggest little industry in the world, right? And um, it's a small industry in that it's very, um, everybody's very friendly and there's a lot of friends. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I fully enjoy whenever we're at NADA is the opportunity to catch up with, with old friends and give them a hug and chat with them about their families and uh, have dinner with them. You know, certainly the culinary experience in New Orleans was certainly missed this year. Um, so, so I think, you know, it's, it's really a family driven industry and it's driven by, you know, um, thousands of, uh, uh, tens of thousands of entrepreneurs, family held businesses that we get the opportunity to help uh, grow and help them improve their business over time. And, and so I think that camaraderie and, and that ability to, to just, you know, be together was, was really missed. And, and it, I think it's something that's missing in, in many areas of our lives today. Would you, you know, if, if, if you had to fill out a feedback card for NADA, and let's say the presumption is next year for 2022, mm -hmm. there was the option to keep it still virtual or in person. Mm -hmm. Would would you still want to keep the virtual aspect 
uh, of NADA or kind of go back to the way it was? Again, presuming that yeah. all the vaccines have been distributed, sure. all the permissions have been granted for people to gather. Would you just want to see it go back to the way it was or some sort of hybrid or? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if the opportunity presents itself and, and I, one of my professors in finance at, at the University of Chicago likes to say, <laughs> where, where we're living right now, the virus is in charge. And um, if we have the ability to get back together, absolutely, we should. Um, but I think the ability also, what we've proven is that this hybrid approach and the ability to listen in on the workshops and learn <clears throat> while you're sitting in your office back at the dealership, I think could be a nice enhancement to, um, to yeah. how NADA takes place and could expose uh, more people that might not have the opportunity to you know, fly to another city and spend three days and a weekend uh, of their time outside of the dealership. I, I think it could be highly effective. Um, I think the other critique I would make is um, the interaction opportunity was limited um, you know, what I learn from is the questions that I get asked by dealers after a workshop, if I have the, the, the honor to present like I did this year. And, um, I think they could have done some more live experiences on the workshops and, um, and, and, and that would have made them more interactive and effective from my perspective. It, that's actually a good point because, you know, with a, with a, a platform, such as these virtual conferences, you're not, I don't think you're going to be limited by bandwidth per se to have every presenter who, in your case, you did an on-demand session so people can watch at any time. And I certainly right. did, but then you can certainly still offer a live Q and A at designated times. And I, I think, look, it's one of those things that, especially if they're drawing enough people and action. And then as we move forward, as you said, maybe there's a lot of uh, dealership, uh, employees that maybe are just getting started and the dealership's not going to pay for them to go make the trip, but they can access it on their computer. Well, mm -hmm. then they could potentially have access to you then to ask those questions. Yep. I thought, I thought that one of the things that's, you know, to be honest, I, I found to be beneficial was it was almost like on, you know, to your point, any DA is very much familiar, familial. It's very much, you know, a lot of, um, relationships that get to be rekindled. And certainly if you've been attending year after year, that's, it's great to see a lot of these people and talk to them and get chummy with them. I, on the other hand, have only been attending NADA for maybe four years. And so mm -hmm. I don't have those long-term relationships. So when I do go to the actual conference, I don't really get to, you know, I see maybe two or three buddies of mine or, you know, people that I know. And then after that, it's like, okay, put my head down, attend the sessions, uh, meet some people and, and whatnot. I found that during doing this as a virtual conference, I was almost able to interact a little bit more, talk a little bit more through the chat features and whatnot. Um, so that, that, that was a nice thing. Very much so. That's great. Um, so one of the things that happened was the transition of the new NADA um, chairman um, from Rhett Reichert to Paul Walzer. Mm -hmm. um, did you get the chance to see that that transition? I did not see that transition, no. So one of the things that uh, Paul, or I shouldn't say one of the things, but there are three things that Paul kind of, you know, focused on in terms of his goal for this year as serving as the NADA chair. 
Uh, let's see here. It's, let me find it here. Here it is. So, so there are three things he's looking to focus on for this year. Diversity and inclusion, dealer and OEM relations, dealer involvement and participation. The diversity inclusion he d- would define as uh, a growing number of Hispanics, Blacks, and Asians uh, in the United States. So therefore, to not only have the actual dealerships in the entire automotive ecosystem reflect that, but also just to find ways to you know, basically sell cars to mm-hmm. more, more of, uh, you know, all, uh, an inclusive um, uh, American country. Um, there's the dealer and OEM relations, uh, which is, you know, this is kind of uh, par for the course here in terms of how sometimes that relationship is pretty contentious. And then he has the dealer involvement and participation, which is basically dealers getting more involved in, in your kind of state uh, legislative process. Sure. The, the dealer and OEM relations, how would you look to define where that is right now, especially in light of this pandemic? I, you know, I, I think as I've been talking to our customers and listening to our, our dealer clients, it, um, it, I, the, the, the OEMs have had, um, less of an influence on the dealers over the you know, certainly over the last uh, year than they might have in the past. And, and it's, it's a function of, you know, them focusing in on the manufacturing side of their business. Um, you know, like many businesses, the pandemic uh, in various parts of the country um, restricted supply and they had to close manufacturing facilities and um, you know, they're still trying to get them back up to full capacity. And that shifted a lot of the focus of the organization towards the, that situation. And with the limited amount of supply that they could get to the dealers, you know, the dealers were really focused on, you know, used cars, trying to sell more used cars and, and sell, you know, fo- focused on fixed ops um, as, as they went into the pandemic. You, you have you have a lot of conversations with dealers. Did you find that you know when you were talking with dealers that the communication that they were having with the OEMs and the OEMs having communication with the dealerships, did you find there to be kind of some uniformity and and you know ultimately unity? Everyone's on the same page, trying to push the the cart you know in the same direction, or was there you know a little bit again more contention of dealers wanted this, OEMs wanted this, and negotiations continued to ensue. Not much, you know, there, there was more that could have got done, but it, but it didn't because there was too much negotiation. Yeah. I didn't hear that from our clients. You know, I think early in the pandemic, there was a real good partnership between the dealers and the OEMs and the OEMs were really um, aggressive with incentives and, and rebates to try to, um, help the, the dealers uh, at the time we thought, you know, was going to be a really, really uh, tough 2020. Um, and then as we went into the pandemic and, uh, and, you know, after April and uh, when, when things started to unfreeze and, and, and the market continued to move on and people were buying cars and we became aware of supply challenges I heard a lot of the dealers say that um, the OEMs were being very helpful 
with off-lease vehicles to try to help them acquire good quality used cars to help drive the business forward. Um, so, so I heard, you know, good, uh, some of the good things that happened in 2020. And, um, you know, I think the, the balance of supply and demand, you know, really kind of lifted all boats. Um, profitability was really strong in 2020. And, um, you know, we just, uh, I think that focus on the relationship between supply and demand and dealer and OEM um, is very important um, so that, you know, we, we, we don't create a glut of inventory in the market and new cars sitting on dealers lots for 385 days. And, and, you know, what we could go back to if we just try to think about going back to normal, whatever, you know, it, like it was in the past. You know, so the biggest uh, contention between dealer and OEM relations is arguably the stair, stair step program. Mm-hmm. So, Again, let's let's put on the um, the the academic lecture lens for for Randy here. So let's remove out that number one issue. Okay, so if you know you're the business strategist and we're looking to come out of COVID stronger, better, however you want to define that, as a business strategist, how would you look at trying to strengthen the relationships between dealers and OEMs? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think um, one of the ch- one of the challenges is that once the car leaves the factory, you know, the manufacturer um, kind of it, it's it's on the dealer now to figure out how to how to move it. And I know um, how to move it from the factory to the dealer, or just no, air- like how to sell it. So yeah, okay. sorry, I don't want I'm throwing in you know industry terms, right? So once it leaves the factory, it's kind of, you know, the, the OEM brought, you know, wipes their hands and it's, and it's the dealer's responsibility. Um, and, and I, and it's interesting because the, the OEM isn't necessarily interested in the outcome. Um, and the dealer's on the hook for trying to figure out how to sell the car, uh, make, you know, money on selling that car. And um, if there was some um, uh, joint uh, accountability on trying to get that car sold in an effective and efficient way, um, that, that might be interesting to look at just from a pure academic perspective, um, just from the supply and demand metrics and from an academic perspective. Um, certainly the way that it's organized today in an entrepreneurial business, a franchisee of the OEM, you know, whether or not that's something that, that, that could be worked out. I'm not sure, but from a pure academic perspective and a supply and demand uh, economics perspective, that might be interesting to look at. Hmm. You know, you talked about the accountability on on kind of both parties. Like, what do you what do you mean by that exactly? Like, how how would you how would you spell that out? Um, you know, maybe it's something where. Um, it's partial ownership of the dealer. So the dealer's not on the hook for the entire cost of the vehicle uh, sitting on the floor with the floor plan expense, et cetera. Um, and, and I think they've attempted to do that with certain amount of in, incentives around the floor plan expense and time that they give the dealer to sell it without having any interest hit. Um, so, so they're looking at things like that. I don't know that they necessarily painted in that academic, academic context, but they are trying to do things that way. Um, and um, so uh, maybe an incentive if the car gets sold within a certain amount of time, 
um, thing, things of that nature. So, so I have an argument. Please tear, <laughs> tear it apart if, if this is untrue, inaccurate, or just an awful argument. So one of the things that actually struck a chord with me when Paul Walzer was talking was um, he was discussing how that, you know, the, the franchise as a business model can be further developed and innovated uh, between dealers and OEMs. And and this kind of sounds like, to your point, what you're describing here, which is interesting, because in my head, when I was hearing about the franchise business model being innovated, in my head, I was like, well, I, to me, it feels like that's what's been going on for at least 20 years of this franchise business model being, you know, trying to find new innovation ways <clears throat> to to sell cars, to make money and so forth and so on. But to me, it almost kind of starts to get down to this dog-eat-dog world where it's, just, it's highly competitive. It's a small pie with a lot of, a lot of major players, Cox Automotive included, you know, all the suite of products mm-hmm. included. And so to me, it was like, I don't think the issue is the franchise business model as it is franchise law that is really the, you know, kind of ultimate anchor that keeps everything not progressing as more or, you know, doesn't progress as much as it should. I think there's a lot of truth truth to that, honestly. I mean, when I entered into this business in 1999, the dealer was supposed to be disintermediated by now. And oh, really? they, you know, with, I mean, cars.com, right? That's That was the advent of the internet and the beginnings of Amazon. And um, how, how, you know, how would consumers buy cars in the future? And what was interesting watching it as, you know, newer in the industry and leading the strategy uh, efforts for at the time ADP, CDK, um, it, it was uh, very interesting to see how state by state, NADA and the state dealers associations strengthen the franchise laws state by state to prevent that from happening. And, um, and it's why you read things in the news today about Tesla. Can they and sell Rivian, direct to a consumer? Right. And Yeah, exactly. And, and it's because of the efforts that NADA and the local dealer state by state dealers associations have done to, to protect their association and their community. Yeah. Um, is it the best outcome? Um, you know, I think there's a, a ton of value that that the OEMs provide or that the OEMs get from the way that the franchise model is set up. And, you know, I think we can all say that the communities where the dealers operate, um, you know, are better places to live because of the way that these families give back to their communities. Um, so there's a lot of positive things about the way that it is. But I think your point is the franchise laws have protected the dealers for sure. I mean, I would aching it to uh, Section 230, right, uh, that would that regulates technology companies, right? Section mm-hmm. 230 was great in the, what was it, 1992 or 94, whenever it was first instituted. Mm-hmm. And it was great back then. You know, it, it, it definitely protected users on these platforms and, and, and admonishing the platforms from any wrongdoing of the users themselves. But yep. as we've moved forward now, it... To me, I'm on the side that Section 230 needs to either be repealed or there needs to be some 
more modernized regulation for big tech. I would say the same then for franchise laws in this day and age that if we do truly want to see some big changes in the automotive space, and maybe that's the other argument is that maybe there are certain people that don't want to see these big changes. Mm -hmm. But if we do want to see some big positive changes, then we do have to look at modernizing franchise law so that, again, either there's more cohesion, there's, 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 there's the regulation in place that actually makes OEMs and dealers want to work together as opposed to, hey, look, here's, here's the line in the sand. Don't cross this line. Don't even yeah. think about crossing this line. And I think the market dynamics will support that. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, in the last few years, we've seen so much activity in buy sells in the dealer community. And um, so we're, we're, I don't know, maybe after I'm retired, we're going to have a lot fewer places to go buy a car. Um, I don't know if that's true, but for sure, we'll have fewer owners with the same number of locations. And so as that um, consolidation happens, I think it will um, naturally, you know, the, the um, market forces we're gonna are gonna make that play out um, and the market power as it shifts back and forth between the the dealer and the and the oem it, it'll it'll play out over time yeah um i i forget oh his name is glenn mercer um he does the uh you know every year he kind of does the update to the future of the automotive business and and the car dealership business and you know, one thing that he mentioned this year that I'm sure he's always mentioned this, but uh, I definitely remember it this time around was how, you know, 20 years ago, the talk was always these publicly traded dealer groups, the Penske's, the uh, auto nations and whatnot will absorb all the mom and pop dealerships. And yet in 2021, they still represent a very small minority of dealerships owned of the 17,000 dealerships that are owned in the United States, they represent a very, very small minority still of all dealerships owned. Yeah, that's very true. And, and what we see activity in the marketplace is less, you know, the auto nations and the Penske's buying more stores. We're really seeing kind of the middle market buying the one or two store family operation and the middle is getting bigger. Um, as, as, so it's it's very fascinating to watch it play out, you know, from a channel theory perspective and to your point, the franchise laws and how that's gonna play out. It's, you know, we, we talk a lot about at Cox Automotive, how it's just a fascinating and a wonderful time to be in this market, in this yeah. industry. And um, so I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of it. I mean, I, you know, just a quick digression since we're showing so much love to the automotive space, like I do. I. I love the automotive space for kind of like this microcosm that it paints of the, you know, life's lessons, social and economic policies and and issues that are going on. I think there's just so many things in the automotive world that are indicative of life and you can just piece every, you could piece any part of the automotive space and be like, oh yeah, that that's happening right now in the United States, it's happening in the world. This is happening in my own household and we can learn from these mistakes and, you know, whatever the case, but that's I love the automotive space as well. Yep. Um, what was it? You had mentioned something that actually I was going to touch upon. Um, oh, we, so you had mentioned that there's more um, dealerships in the middle that are being absorbed and growing in that sense, as opposed to these, you know, on the highest 
uh, elite level of dealer groups such as the publicly traded companies. So in this middle group, is, is there any other insights that you can lend? Like, what does that mean if there's more activity in this buy-sell space of dealerships in the middle getting acquired? Does that does that mean that there's going to be just more, I don't know, regional mm-hmm. activity? Is that, it, well, yeah, what, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so what we're seeing, and we're seeing activity, you know, in all uh, facets of, of size of groups. But when we think about the increased activity in the middle, we're talking about larger regional players. Um, and, um, you know, we, we used to see, you know, the Chicago dealers here would have a point down in Florida just so they could have their house down there and enjoy the warm weather in the wintertime. But now they're being more strategic around, you know, the, you know, the, the mid-Atlantic states, for example, and, and creating more regional uh, uh, footprints. Um, and there's economies of scale that they can create and how they manage. And, and we're seeing um, in those cases, you know, the, the centralization of some activities in these larger regional groups now where um, they used to have each location buy cars at auction. Now they're creating centralization around a group of people in a central location buying cars for all the locations that the dealership group might own. So we're seeing a lot of that play out, and it's mostly happening in that middle market. I mean, this sounds like following in the footsteps of the Carvanas and the CarMaxes of the world, right? I mean, these are they have more centralizations with their operations, kind of a a, a unified or not a unified, but a single distribution center that's from that distribution center then it goes out to the different um lo- geographic locations within you know a 300 mile radius or whatever it is yeah it's some yeah it's it's uh in some cases they're creating a, a hub and spoke type approach yeah. right now yeah, especially reconditioning and acquiring used cars and having central reconditioning centers or central groups that buy cars at auction for the dealership group so yeah that's happening See, so, you know, going back to like franchise law, this would be the interesting thing here is that with with these with more of these regional players, you know, big, bigger regional players, the ability now to sell state to state again, that's you're limited by franchise law. That could definitely be something that if we look to lessen the regulation on that, you could have more of these regional um, dealer groups, uh, you know, have a bigger footprint in 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 their markets and in, in their in their full operation. And I think that's going to be the fascinating kind of evolution of e-commerce in our industry, right? right, Is, right. You know, Carvana, Vroom, you know, CarMax, it's it's used cars and there's no uh, constraint around where they can sell a car. Um, but because of the franchise laws, there's a constraint on where a dealer can sell a new car. Um, and thinking through how that might play out. I know the, uh, there's a lot of the OEMs that we've talked to that are thinking about a, a national e-commerce approach from you know, their central website. And then how does it play out? How do you get their dealer network involved? How do you think about the consumer trying to do a trade-in on a national level? How do we think about um, you know, trying to arrange financing for a variety of options beyond just the captive finance option that the, that the OEM might have. Viato. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Um, well, okay. So I, I want to pivot here a little bit um, because 
certainly what's interesting about you is is again you um you know you you come from the academic space as well so uh you uh taught as you said leadership at a at a culinary school uh what was the name of that culinary school again Kendall College. Kendall College. Okay. You're also a lecturer at the Smeal College of Business at Penn State University. Yep, Penn State. Yep. And at the Wisconsin School of Business mm-hmm. uh, and other business schools. So, so you you've taught you you've had your 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 feet on the ground at these business schools to see what's going on. It, so I'm curious if you look at what's going on in business schools. Are they meeting the demands of the automotive business space? You know, I I think specific to the ins and outs of running a dealership, um, you know, I I don't know that there's any, you know, pure graduate school where you can go get an MBA that's focused on it. I mean, certainly not like Northwood University in Michigan, who we partner with and is a phenomenal place. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of is how we've partnered with Northwood to help create, you know, a laboratory for um, their students where they can, um, we can um, create a, a, a real world dealership situation where they're buying cars and pricing cars and trying to get those cars sold. And it's a really cool simulation that we've created with, in partnership with them and Cox Automotive. That's cool. Um, but I think where the business schools come into play is, um, you know, how big data and artificial intelligence can help make the dealer more effective and efficient. Um, the um, thinking around entrepreneurship and getting students in, interested in entrepreneurship, because I still think for a long time, you know, our industry is going to be driven by family-owned entrepreneurial businesses that um, are the lifeblood of, of how cars get you know, sold and repaired, and um, it's 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 a key part. Um, so so I think, and and you know, I think one of the things that was interesting in um, some of the work that we've done over the last year uh, around pricing and pricing strategy is there's a professor of marketing at Northwestern. Um, his name's Florian Zettelmeyer, and he's actually written a lot of academic papers on the. Um, pricing strategy uh, and inventory strategies of dealerships. Um, so we've really learned from him and, and it's been a, a great opportunity for us to bring some academic thinking into what we're doing what, uh, like around what, inventory management. Like what, what, what are some of the um, theories uh, that uh, this Florian uh, person has, has postulated? Yeah, just um, how the relationship between pricing and inventory and pricing, uh, uh, personalized pricing, um, how do you maximize return on that consumer that's interested in your car? Um, He's taken it from an academic perspective, and it's been pretty interesting, um, the the conclusions that he's drawn. Is there, you know, speaking of the program that you've implemented at Northwood, is in addition to this program training the next future entrepreneurs and workforce, is there also some, is, do you also use this as some sort of, you know, like study group as if like, Hey, let's see how, 
college graduates are thinking and pricing things, or do you do you kind of look at and analyze data on that end of the spectrum? Yeah, we, we haven't um, up to this point, but that's an interesting twist on what we might learn um, as we're creating these uh, you know, virtual dealerships for the students to run. That's pretty fascinating to think about. Yeah, I mean, it just sounds as if it's like a, it's a perfect focus group, right? And and, and especially, yeah, it's like they're 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 all dialed in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you had mentioned that's uh, with business schools of kind of focusing on these, you know, big data analytics. You know, these these are concepts that have really come to to the to the forefront of businesses dealerships over the last five six years now. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things, if I could be a bit critical of NADA, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this too, and that is the session you did then, you did, let's see, it was titled, I have it here, hang on, I have it here, it was entitled, Use AI to Fix Your Vehicle Pricing and Promotion Problem. Mm -hmm. I think, I think. Last year at NADA and certainly other conferences I've attended in years past, there have been more sessions dedicated to big data, analytics, AI. And yet this past year at NADA, if I just look at the headlines, I didn't get the chance to sit on every session, but if I just look at the headlines and the session descriptions, you were the only one that actually had any session related to this newer, advanced type of technology. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, I'm sure because Cox Automotive is at the forefront of things, but would this also be a little bit of a stain on NADA and perhaps NADA not recognizing this sort of topic to be as relevant? I don't know that it's that they don't think it's relevant because I think what you saw last year is they did see the relevance of big data and AI. Yeah. 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 But I I think where we are now is that um, it's rather than a buzzword or a concept, it's really now the cornerstone of capabilities that exist in the tools and the offerings that vendors are bringing to market. it really, I mean, I think it's gone more from theory or concept now down to practice. And I think even in my workshop, we talked more about um, taking action based on the information that the big data and AI brings to you rather than big data and AI as a concept. So I think um, as you attended workshops, um, taking action, being driven by AI was more of a theme this year from what I saw, whether that was reconditioning or my workshop around pricing, than the concept of how AI can is, is a buzzword and is something that we should be thinking about. So then are you starting to see those applications take place in some of these business schools that AI, for instance, is no longer taught at a conceptual level. Mm-hmm. It's here are the case studies, here are the applications of where AI is useful. Yeah, without a doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Are there any cases that stand out for you where, um, again, maybe this is in the automotive space, maybe it's outside of the automotive space where you personally have learned the applications that AI is an extremely valuable tool that's all dealerships, all businesses should be looking to implement? 
Well, I mean, I mean, I, I think certainly what we've discovered as we've been digging into this is that um, it really creates greater decision-making accuracy and clarity. Um, and, you know, specifically around the concept of pricing, um, you know, we, we, we've for the longest time focused on age, right? As that car ages on your lot, you need to lower the price to make it more attractive to the consumer so that you move it and you increase the number of turns in your inventory. I mean, that's been the mantra for Viato for a long time. But not every car should be priced the same. And what we've seen in the history in the last 10 years is that, you know, as a car ages, it's pretty much priced the same, whether it's a Ford F-150 or it's a, a Toyota Camry. And we know intrinsically now through big data that each of these cars has a different investment potential or return potential. And we can recognize that. So rather than treating all of your inventory as one big one big thing that you're trying to turn, we can now segment the inventory and find pockets of value and price those differently, depending on the amount of opportunity that exists for profit. And yeah, that, that was something that you know we recognized when we looked at all of our clients across the country and how they were pricing their more their the 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 inventory that had the most profit potential. They were actually pricing the most aggressively, and the cars that had the least amount of profit potential, based on our AI and big data analysis, they were they were pricing the highest, and so it was really upside down. And it really identified this opportunity for us because the best way we can help our clients make more money and more profit, pricing is the biggest lever you have. And so that's why we spent so much time over the last year bringing this new pricing technology to our clients. Yeah. And that, you know, you, you had mentioned two very key words in that, and that was the ability for dealerships and for businesses to better make decisions and for better clarity. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that sounds like exactly what uh, you got, you were able to do there. That's super interesting, Randy. Um, so a couple more questions here for you. So first off, when it does come to um, AI uh, in the dealership space, what do you see as maybe the number one uh, hurdle challenge for dealers that they don't get or understand about AI? Um, you know, I, I think it's always important um, when, when we're crafting metrics, insights, you know, the, the dealers need to believe it. And so we need to be able to, to explain how we arrived at a conclusion in a way that, that, that makes sense to them. Um, and, and so and that's not, and that's no easy task. It's not easy at all. And, and it's one of the really fascinating things about the history of Viato and in introducing these metrics on how to think about managing your used car inventory that are now standard, you know, metrics that everybody talks about every day. And um, so as we're thinking about these new metrics that dealers need to think about, profit potential per vehicle, uh, segmenting your cars based on that profit potential, you know, it's something that we need to explain. Uh, our, our founder, Dale Pollock, who I know you talked to, 
he talks about showing your work, right? It's, it's, no, I can't just give you the answer. I have to show you how we got there. That's the academic in him too. <laughs> it totally is. Yep. Yep. And so um, that's key. So just putting, you know, a bunch of data into a black box and having, you know, the, the ticker tape come out and it says B, you know, dealers, if I can be so graphic, they're, they're the first ones to call bullshit. Are, are the, are those metrics? <laughs> um, so going back to the program that you have at Northwood university, as just an example, are those metrics being introduced to those students so that they're all we of do. a sudden being, yeah. Yeah. We, we teach them the concept of velocity and we teach them, you know, how to think about appraisal and we teach them price to market and cost to market. We, we absolutely do. And, it, and it's a great opportunity um, to kind of help the, the students learn, you know, those metrics and how to think about running a used car department. Well, uh, I will, I'm looking forward as uh, you know, I, I previously had on LG bright, um, on the show here and, uh, he's a good friend of ours. Yep. Yeah. So I, I was just wrapping out with him the other day, so we'll be, he'll be coming on the show again to do another recording so we can catch up, but there'll be, you know, definitely it's, I, I, I haven't heard as much detail about the relationship that Cox Automotive in general has with Northwood university until you've been able to describe it for me. So thank you for that. I think that's Absolutely. super interesting for the work that you guys are doing there. Yep. So, okay, last question here for you, Randy. This is where we get a little bit personal, sir. All right, okay. you ready to get a little bit personal? <laughs> sure, absolutely. You're already dropping bullshit on the show, so you know, <laughs> I can, we're, we're definitely going to get real personal. We're going to get real. All right, so business class listeners, this is the time in the show where we do bedroom sessions, bedroom sessions, because we get a little bit personal, and you make the bed that you sleep in. So, Randy, my question to you, sir. What would you like to accomplish with your money that is most meaningful to you? Right. Um, you know, that's, that's an interesting question. And I, and I think it kind of goes back to what we talked about with Northwood. Um, when Northwood came to us and wanted to partner with us to help, you know, teach the future generation of, of, uh, students, um, I was really excited about it because, you know, giving back to my community and especially trying to help um, students, children is a huge passion of mine. And um, there's a couple of organizations here in Chicago that I support that do just that. And um, so whether it's, you know, my kids, my kids, friends, underprivileged kids in Chicago, um, you know, helping them uh, get on the right path, helping them in a time of need. It's really, it's a really a, a big passion of mine. So, so I try to, you know, use um, the, uh, you know, so grateful with the opportunity that I've had as part of Cox Automotive, because the, we spend a lot of time giving back to the communities in which we operate. In fact, one of the organizations that I support, I'm working with them right now, um, on a, uh, uh, a Cox grant um, that we have an opportunity to help them get. So um, it, it's really a passion of Cox Automotive. And when I had the opportunity to join Cox, we're really so strongly aligned in my personal values and the Cox values that um, it, it's, it feels like home working here as being part of the Cox family. Is there anything that's, you know, 
the the general sense of helping the underprivileged, the disadvantaged, any you know any bit of of your money that can go to that is definitely a noble cause. I'm I'm curious though if we were to even like be a bit more hyper focused. Is there any kind of any one particular issue that means most to you in in again solving that your money would solve? You know, I, I think helping, you know, one of the, one of the organizations I support is called the Chicago training center and they, um, they help, uh, kids that have gotten high school, middle school, high school kids that have gotten down the wrong path of gangs and give them a d- new direction by showing them the value of sports and team sports. And one of the things that they do is actually rowing. You know, you wouldn't think of a bunch of inner city kids rowing on the Chicago river, but it's something that they've done and it's a unique thing that they bring to these kids to show them the value of teamwork and that there's another way. Um, and they actually, they, um, they just, there was a documentary done recently on some kids that had gone through that program. It's called, uh, the most beautiful thing and it's available on Amazon prime. Um, and one of the executive producers was Dwayne Wade, who's from inner city, Chicago. And, uh, the actor it's Dwayne Wade. Yeah. <laughs> um, the basketball player, right? And, basketball uh, player, yeah. I don't yeah. know why I said actor. I, yeah. I was, I was thinking of actually, who, who's the actor? Dwayne something. The Rock. Was, Dwayne Johnson, maybe. No, I think he was on no? the Cosby, I think he was on the Cosby show. Oh, I'm not sure who you're thinking yeah. of. Anyhow, so, so the, the But the anyway, so they've done a, uh, they did a documentary on, on this organization and some of the kids that had gone through it and, and you can, getting kids on the right path and away from crime and, and gang membership is, is, is so gratifying. And, and, you know, some of these kids have done amazing things in their lives. I see. So it's, it's, it's really, you know, the cause is important, but it's almost as if, how does that cause uh, implement these values that would get someone's life back on track, how they can just better if their life is not, you know, if they never really went off track, how can this cause implement activities, programs, scholarships that can continue to progress uh, someone's life so that they can continue to progress through life? Yep, absolutely. Amen, Randy. Amen <laughs> to you, sir. How can people find you, sir? How can people follow you? Well, um, my Twitter is Randy Kobat, and um, I'm also on LinkedIn. Be happy to connect with anybody on LinkedIn. Um and uh, I'm easily found on both those platforms. Great. And again, business class listeners, I will add all his information to the episode page. Randy, sir, can we get a, a, a little drum sample here? Can you, can you like rip off like some like, like some, so here's a word that I know in the, in the drum vocabulary, syncopation. Syncopation. Absolutely. Yep. Car- Car- Carter Buford of the Dave Matthews band is like one of my all time favorite drummers. Yeah. But, uh, can, can you do something? Can we end the show with, uh, Randy doing some sort of drum line, something? I don't have my sticks with me. Um, you got but a I'm, <laughs> let's see here. Yeah. Let's see what I can do. Something like that. Yeah, you know, it didn't come through all the way, but still, but still, I was able to hear, and that is actually pretty darn impressive. I mean, that was natural for you to just do that. So, 
kudos. Randy, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Dennis. Thank you very much. Business class listeners, as we end every episode, cheers. Prost. Lachem. Kipis. Nastravi. Salut. Kampai. Mabruk. Tutsin. Gambe. Yamas. Nastarovie. Vo. Salute. And Saudi to the customer experience. Business class, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to hear more of the show, not only should you subscribe, but have a visit back to some of the two previous mini series that have been produced. The first one called Upward Social Mobility about navigating life during COVID. And the second miniseries dubbed Home is Where You Park It, which is a van life miniseries. If those two sound of interest to you, those are a great little entertainment miniseries podcast production, four episodes, and it just tells the story of either van life or COVID life. So you can check those out on the episode page. I will see you next week. Next week.